Sean Ennis. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb. And you're in the Transporter Room, a very special edition. We are flying in low Earth orbit above Hartford, Connecticut this week because in Hartford, in Fairfield, in New Britain, in New Haven, in Bridgeport, in Boston, in New York, all across our nation there has been seven days of people protesting. There have been nights of disorder. There have been attacks on the American people by a president of the United States. And it's all so confusing for so many people. And it's also something that people are just so sick of having to do. They're so tired of having to march. I saw one sign that said, I can't believe we're still protesting this shit. I have no words. After hearing you say all that, I, I really have no words. Because that is, that's the way I'm feeling. That's the way I've been feeling all weekend. And at one level, I'm very frustrated that we're still out here, but I'm also in many ways very, I also find a lot of hope in the response. I've seen what's happened across, across our state where we're based out of and across this country yeah. and across this country. There are so many organizations here locally and nationally, which have put themselves out front Um no matter what your your particular political orientation is, no matter what your tendencies are, no matter who you are, people, there's a lot of people who are waking up. And that and it is really good to see. Yeah. I think so too. I, I, I think it's great that people of all colors, races, and genders are out there protesting. I think a lot of people are with us. And I know I know that some people are saying, Don't believe these cops when they take a knee, don't believe these cops when they join us marching. But I think you got to start somewhere. And I'm willing to, as a white person, give people the benefit of the doubt. And I think there are outside agitators that are making messes and causing trouble and rabble rousing and making people look bad and destroying minority neighborhoods. I think that there are forces beyond what we know. And I think this president lacks complete understanding of how we got here. Well, this president is is once again showing that American penchant for a lack of understanding of what's going on in the world. But that's what we're seeing. And I have a feeling we're at the beginning. This is, I've said more than a few times these last few days that we're, that we're living 1968. This is, this is what 1968 was like. We are going to see, I think we're at the beginning. I think we will see more cities burn. I think we will see this president become more entrenched and more bunkered in the president of the United States in the middle of civil insurrection bunkered into the white house. And when he gets out of the white house, he uses his um, thugs using pepper spray and rubber bullets to clear peaceful protesters. So he can make a photo op holding a Bible outside of church. So, so he can make a campaign ad. And That's him, what it is. So he can make a campaign ad today. That's the white is. house today, the committee to reelect the president, or as I like to call it, creep Two, put together a campaign ad. And I am going to disagree with you. I'm not feeling the whole cops kneeling with protesters thing yet. They, we got, they, we got to see a lot more before all of a sudden. And oh yeah. Memo to the national football league. Don't even try it. Yeah, I got to say, honestly, I don't think don't. taking a knee is really a good image right now for the cops. <laughs> don't. Taking a knee is probably but, the last thing they should be doing is putting their knees I'm, on the ground. <laughs> I, but I will see. Well, my whole thing, the whole thing to me is 
I'm seeing a lot of symbolism. I'm seeing a lot of people tweaking on the movement, like L'Oreal Cosmetics. And I like the fact that Monroe Bergdorf called them out. Called oh, them out this morning. They fired that black that. trans model. They fired Yes. Her. I like I like the fact that she called them out and cracked their face on Twitter and saying, mm-hmm. oh, no, you didn't. No, no, That's no, right. sis. That's not going to happen. Well, we I, have a... Yeah. And we are in Pride Month, and I'm saying it right now. Uh, there are things I'm not tolerating for Pride Month. I'm, there will be no whitewashing. There will be no straight washing. There will be no pink washing anywhere near me for this Pride Month. And I know Pride's going virtual this year, but it's still a fight back. And now more than ever, to me, it's apropos that this is happening during Pride Month because LGBTQ communities especially, there's a lot of work that has to be done within these within within the rainbow sphere. Absolutely. Some of the most racist people I have encountered in my life were so-called progressives. <laughs> and let's not forget, we are in the middle of a pandemic. We have more than 100,000 people dead in America. We have problems. 1918 came back and said, uh, you know, I am back. And then 1968 said, here, hold my beer. <laughs> so 2020 is canceled. But at the same time, I have hope. I have hope that we're at the halfway point of 2020, that the second half of 2020 has got to be better than the first half. How could it get worse? Oh, my God. I guess locusts, death of the firstborn. I don't know. I don't know what plague is next. Setting up the co- coordinates for the the heart of Hartford, Connecticut. We're bringing the cultural corner into the transporter room. Kamora Harrington, you're beaming up. Welcome to the transporter room. Ah, thank you so much for inviting me. Hello. Uh, Hello. I appreciate the space. I've been listening to a little bit of your conversation. And because I'm me, I'm taking notes. And because I'm me, I can barely read my notes. But how are we today? <laughs> you know, I, I have had the great pleasure of interviewing you for my Rise Up uh, talk show. And that was one of my favorite episodes and one of the most popular ones. Because I thought you brought a perspective that a lot of people lack these days. And now it's even more apparent how few people really understand. It's like Natasha Cloud said, your silence is a knee on my neck. And it's time for people to stop being silent. Yeah, I I had last night, I held a meeting, um, not really a training, but a meeting that was only with white people. And it was just white folks. And, and I'm so happy that we were able to do it because there's that place where white people really think, well, you know, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything. And I really don't feel like I'm educated on this subject. So I feel like my voice isn't. Fit. And so all of this, this mental work, this ridiculous mental work that gets to a place of them not using their voice, not realizing you not saying anything says everything. Boy, does it say everything to me. <sighs> white folks need to talk and white folks need to talk. Um, and the truth is they need to talk from a place of ignorance, which is, I don't know what I'm talking about, but I'm thinking this, help me with this. I don't know what I'm talking about. Are other people thinking this? Because from my experience, white people, a, a culturally white folks are taught how to be polite and how to be nice and, and how to keep conversation smooth. Um, but they're also taught that race is something that you can't talk about. So right now when it needs to be talked about, You've got a bunch of people who really, really, really need to be not a part of the larger conversations, but they need to be a part of their own conversations, and they're scared to step into them because of socialization. And we need to do better. And Kamora, let's just get right to it. How how can they do better? What were you hearing in those conversations? 
what were the responses and what responses were you giving? Okay. Well, okay. So let me start off with, I, I was getting the regular typical responses that you expect, but then people are starting to push themselves. So I want to talk about where we are and what people are seeing because we're hearing from a whole lot of people that it seems like a shift has happened. It seems like a shift has happened. It seems like a shift has happened. And I think that the Women's March three years ago or four years ago, the Women's March, with the places where they screwed up and didn't see marginalized women and kind of treated the, the trans women, the black women, those of us who showed up, really it wasn't okay. White women went to D.C. They felt the thing. It was a wonderful thing. They got home and realized that they had blinders on and left their sisters out. The soul searching that happened with them starting then created a place where they're ready to start pushing more now. And what we need to hold them to and get people to really understand is the soul searching can't end. The education can't end. Um, and, and pushing people to do real black liberation work and start thinking in real black liberation ways. So last night, a bunch of white women ready to do, and, and there were some men in there as well, but a bunch of white folks ready to do something. They want to do something to make it better. And I'm Kimora, so I pulled out Kimora ness And, you know, and it was all set up for it before we got there. So they knew it was a brave space. They knew that I was going to suggest an action, and then we were going to discuss and figure that action out. Um, and the idea really in suggesting that action was to create a place where people can start doing the work of cultural humility, which really is figure out who you are and where you come from to get from there. So we do all the exercise that we need to do to get there. And then it's, okay, so this is the action that I'd like you to do. You're white people. You came to me. You said you wanted to do a thing. What you're going to do is you're going to do a Father's Day bailout for black men for Father's Day. There are many men who are going to miss Father's Day. They're not going to be able to spend Father's Day with their children for no reason other than they can't afford bail. So you as white women, your charge is to raise bail money and then release a whole bunch of black men from jail for Father's Day. And the faces did what the faces were going to do. It was a Zoom call. And before anyone said anything, it's like, yeah, okay, I'm pushing you. I told you I was going to push you. I told you this is going to be a brave space. Feel everything inside of you. I'm not asking you to say a thing. I'm asking you to feel it and think about what's going on. And that's our starting space. And a very important thing that I think everyone in this country needs to do right now is identify their own places of white supremacy and work from there. And that's, that includes black and brown folks who've internalized some of the oppressor's ways. So you talk about releasing black men from jail and folks' minds immediately go to maybe they belong there. What is the criteria that you're using to determine which black men? And then the important part for these white folks was what will the pushback be? Because as, as I was laying it out, and I was having fun with ridiculousness because we need to get to the real stuff, not the surface stuff. Not that this is so bad it needs to end, but no, we really need to do something about this. I was like, okay, so as you do this, um, there's a bunch of folks from the Farmington Valley area. It's like, okay, so you're going to go to the police department in Farmington with your phone, and you're going to take a selfie of yourself with cash as you walk into the police department to give them money. And in that selfie, you're going to say, I am releasing black men who cannot afford bail from jail today. What is your family going to say? What is your community going to say? What will that do to your reputation and how it will, will it affect your job? And when white people are really able to start thinking about things in that way, then we can start to really discuss what white supremacy is, and then maybe dismantle it. But if we're going to pretend as if there's not a place in America where we understand that black men belong locked up, then we can't begin to do the work. Is this a generational thing, Kamora? Nope. Nope. It's an American thing. Good answer. Yeah. 
Well, you know, it says American is apple pie. Now, Kimura, I want to talk about the intersection between between this slice of American life and an intersection of a specific of a specific slice of American life to where we all, where everybody who's in this chat today belongs to, and that is queer American life. Yeah. Where okay, how do we in a, how do we address how do you address that divide? Because I mean, some of the most, I mean, some of some of the most, I'm going to say it. Some of the most virulent whiteness happens in queer spaces. How do we go about forging that river? Uh, okay, and and so you're asking me, and so I am going to come firmly from the Kamora Leela Harrington perspective, and that's what you're about to get right now, which is a line that I've been sitting on for for a very very long time. And so, folks who've already heard me, it's gonna sound old hat, um, but we need to. In the queer community, we really, really, really need to look at identity development and how we are and aren't going through those stages in ways that are going to get us to a place of really having space for everyone. Um, so one, one way that I like to confront this, and I know that this is going to have to be edited, so I'm going to talk and please edit this how you need to. Um, and I'm just saying that for time. But white people in America are raised to know and understand that they are better than everyone else. White men in America definitely know that they are raised to be better than everyone else. Um, and this, like we can, the parents who are crying and saying that I don't do that, I'm not talking about the parents. Um, if that's not what's happening, if they don't think that that's what they're doing in their homes. But the media is all about letting little white boys know that they're the great, like my son is eight years old. And, and I talk about how America really is set up to let little boys between seven and 12 know that they run the world. Like when it comes to media, when it comes to the movies, when it comes to all kinds of stuff, little white boys in America know that they are kings. And then adolescence happens for our young men. And many white young men who are at that, because when, that, when that, piece of, that second piece of identity development starts to hit, that's when they realize, oh, you were king, your daddy is king, other people who are a lot like you are king, but you, my darling, are queer, so therefore you just lost a whole lot of status. Let's jump you down to the bottom of the barrel. So when the world comes out and tells you that you are less than, what do you do? You do everything in your power to fight to hold on to that status and not lose that status. Your status is incredibly important to you. So here in the United States of America, white men are at the top. Who's at the bottom? Black men. So as you, as this child is developing their identity development without anyone supporting them and, and pointing out the intersections and the lack of intersections, they're creating a place where inside of them, they know that they're better because they have to. They know that they're better than black and brown people, right? On top of that, they are marginalized because they are queer, which means that who they are is not seen fully by the larger community and the larger community has some BS, ugly ideas that they assign to them that aren't theirs. They go looking for representations of self outside in the larger world, as we all do. If you're marginalized, if you're alone in a corner, you're looking for your superhero. You're looking for that person to look up to who you know has what you need. Black women in this country are strong as fuck because we have been told since day one that we ain't shit. I'm so sorry. I swear that's what I do. Um, but we've been told since day one that who we are is not important. So people point to the strong, sassy black woman, not realizing that that is created out of years of pain and abuse and figuring out how to hold on to yourself 
in the face of a community and a society who knows that you're less than and crowns you. Our young gay white boys find strength in black women and then fuck it all up by saying that they got a sassy black woman inside of them, not realizing that they're identifying a strength that they need and that they wish that they had. And there's places where wonderful work can come out of that. But if that is not allowed or if that is not given the respect and space that it needs, and if people are not working with those young white gay boys to let them know at 13 that they're not the greatest thing since sliced bread and they're not the worst thing ever, that they're just a human being, that they're one in the number, then we end up continuing with all of the ridiculous racism that lives within the queer community when we should and could be so much better and so much further along. That was a lot of words to answer that question, but I really think that for that one, that many words are necessary. No, but that's what we need. I mean, we need outrage. The time for politeness to me is over. And I've heard Kimura give that explanation before. And it still blows my mind as to when you really think about it at the gut level of, and we say it often, especially in queer communities, that representation matters. And I think that's one of the biggest issues that we that we're seeing in this. It's because I hear this often. Uh like Carly, I don't know where my voice is. I don't know how I should speak out. I don't know if I should speak out. And and part of the reason is that you have that is quite frankly is quite frank, frankly on one side, yes, there's the matter of whiteness and white supremacy. But also there is a matter that in many ways even after people quote unquote get woke there is a neat white folks Need just like representation matters across the board, white folks need to realize they need to look at white voice. They need to see. Wait a minute, there were white voices before you that spoke out. There were Ann Bradens in this world. There were Pete Seegers in this world. There were, I mean, there were Reverend Norman Thomases in this world. Yeah, who were white voices who spoke out. There are, you have white role models who spoke out. And that's one thing that white folks need to realize. They need to realize that you have heroes in your community who stood out, spoke out, took the risk. And that, and that's one of those things that would, that need to be shown, that history needs to be taught. And see, and that's, and, but that goes back to something I've, oh, I've said very often that, that the that the biggest hang up in many ways is the fact that so many is the fact that who is who are among who are among the the largest casualties of white supremacy answer working class white people because they are the people on one hand who are told that it's because of them the other that you're downtrodden when the fact of the matter is they're using that same stat, status to cut you out of the deal Textbook case of that is the person who's running this country right now. Really look at Donald Trump the last four years. Look at who his policy. We already know his policies are going to hurt, are going to hurt the Carlys and Camoras of the world. But those policies have also hurt a lot of Don Ennis's in this world as well. It's hurt a lot of, it's hurt a lot of neighbors that I have in areas I've lived in where I am in central Connecticut. I mean, come on, even, even after Donald Trump, Donald Trump said he was going to protect your job, but look at all the companies who who used to have manufacturing here where we're based, 
and they've moved them things to China, Indonesia, Mexico, everywhere else. And then you have these people who are largely white working class people say, Donald Trump was going to save my job. And then you find out he took your job. Fool, they moved your job anyway. And that, and you see this, and you see this division, and people need something to blame. And that's where we, and that's often where we are right now. Right now, there is something that was put in, and Dawn tipped me to this, and I got to give got to give credit to tip me to this, where what you're seeing right now is just not the offshoot of police brutality. It's an offshoot of police brutality combined with what we're seeing in COVID and the economic and social tension of that. And people are at the boiling point. And that is also a good deal of what you're seeing out here. And people are starting to realize, and this is scaring the body politic, and it's scaring the powers that be to realize that people are starting to realize that, man, there's what? how are we divided? I have more in common. A white working class people are, are starting to get the idea of, wait a minute, I have more in common with black and brown people than I do with the donors to, to the committee to reelect the president. Yes. And that, and so, and that is the work and that's the necessary work that we need to do to get to a place to, to actually move forward and stop this stuff. And I know that like when folks only hear me, when folks only hear the sound bites, they get this idea that I'm attempting to be divisive and focusing on the differences. But I will tell you that from my perspective and from my work, there has been in this country for far too long, the folks who want to make things better want to jump over the hard work of looking at the differences, find one place of commonality and do work there. And they do that and it doesn't work and it falls apart completely as opposed to just stepping back and understanding there's a whole lot of stuff going on here. There's a whole lot of correlations. There's a whole lot that we can learn, but let's actually get to a place of learning. So talking about the, the place, you know, the intersection, the queer black intersection, and then bringing up Donald Trump. In the black community, black people have been telling white people about what needs to be done and what was going to be done if people didn't do what needed to be done, right? This is something that black people historically have been doing for, I would say my entire lifetime, but way, way, way before I even hit this earth as an idea, right? I, I, I saw a place where definitely a shift and a shift that's gotten us to this place in the queer community where people need to change and push to create change. When Donald Trump was running for president, Queer people were screaming about all the potential things that were going to happen. And all of their really nice liberal relatives said, well, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. And you know what, that's, that's kind of ridiculous. Like you, okay, so granted the man may have said some things that aren't so great, but really you're going to take it to there? I don't know what would ever make you think that he would lock children up in cages and like all of the awful things they did. Marginalized communities, and right now I'm speaking specifically to the queer community because I know there's a whole lot of white queer folks on this. Queer people said loudly that what was going to happen was going to happen. Their nice, reasonable people said, why are you so negative? The glass is half full. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's wait and see. And queer people screamed, we don't have time. And we are here now in this place. I can tell you that black people have since the dawning of black people in this continent, been telling white people what needs to happen. And white people love to tone police black people on it. And well, maybe if you said it in a way that wasn't so angry, are you kidding? Are you really kidding? But okay, so the tone policing happens. And then that glass half full. I can't believe that you really think that this could happen. I can't believe that you really think that this is what's happening. I can't believe that in this ridiculous place of not believing the people with the lived experience who understand and know where we are and what's happening. 
And then boom, what happens? Here we are. I can tell you in the black world, we've been saying it forever. Every time what we say was going to happen happens, white America comes with a pushback of, well, yes, you said it, but you said it in a mean way and no one could have anticipated this. Since the time that you said this was going to happen and this thing happened, these other things happened to make it happen. So you weren't predicting shit. You just somehow came up with this fantasy of what could have possibly happened. Listen to marginalized voices. We know what we're saying. And right now, what white queer people need to do is say, yo, y'all need to listen to black people. Y'all listen, need to listen to black queer people. Y'all need to listen to black trans women. This is my Monica Roberts shout out, and I never do one of these without shouting that mother of we mine out. Because the she's sister we love queer. the general. We love the general. Yo, because she will tell you how fucked up you are with love. When That's you right. screw up, when you're out here trying to get it right. Yo, I am a cis, gender-conforming black lesbian. You think I'll fuck up on the trans shit a whole lot? <laughs> Luckily, I got Monica. And that woman loves me and knows my heart and knows what I'm doing. So when I fuck up, she lets me know how I fucked up. Not in a nice way. There's nothing nice and gentle because guess what? When we're nice and gentle, then it gives us a place to absolve ourselves and then the growth doesn't happen. She says the same thing That woman thing loves me. me. I got to say yes, one she thing, loves though. loves me from my toes. About what you said, this is a problem that specific specific to white men because women even white women have the same nope. problem uh-uh. nope oh, no, i'm nope. gonna say one nope. thing let me nope. let me just finish nope. my thought let me, come on let me finish my thought i let you rant let me do my little rant and then you can tell me i'm wrong okay because okay. i'm not gonna say it's the same dimension the same degree i'm not gonna even say that it's exactly the same or close to the same it's not the same but white women hillary clinton for example get this thing all the time of, oh, well, when you talk, all I hear is shrill. And when gay men talk, all they hear is the lisp or the uh, or, or a, fe- a feminine voice. And white, cis, straight men do this all the time to all marginalized folks. But yes, especially to people of color. I'm not going to yeah. deny that. And, and, and think about this. So white women have learned the amazing tactic of crying. <laughs> and yeah. I will tell you that when... That when, when I do my trainings, like for real, when I do trainings, and, and we can talk if you'd like, we can talk about my definition of privilege, we can talk about white supremacy, we can have all of those conversations. But when I am doing a training, and I have white men who are ready to start dwelling in and thinking about what we're talking about and thinking about places where difference really creates problems, mm-hmm. there, if there's a white woman in the room who's feeling a thing, she starts to cry, or at least her lips starts to quiver, and she starts to make it clear that she's feeling a feeling that's uncomfortable. At that point, because of socialization, all of the white men in the room take care of her and her emotions. Mm-hmm. And I'm a black woman who talks like this. So what do you think happens in that room? All of a sudden, we're at a place where we're going to start talking about real stuff, and we're ready to start pushing, and we're ready to start really looking at what all of our responsibilities are. Pushing back, pushing back. White men, you're going to push back. I'm going to push back. We're going to go there. Mm-hmm. This is going to happen. That's great. White woman starts to cry. Everything turns to keeping her safe. And why is she crying? Because that mean black lady said a thing. No, <laughs> white women have been owning this since day one. Mm-hmm. Why supposedly, why were all of those black men lynched? Because of the sanctity of white women. Right. I can mm-hmm. tell you women. that coming, exactly. from a, I know. Coming, from, coming from a family of black midwives in the South, White women loved to fuck black men. When a little brown baby came out, that baby was given to a black family somewhere or murdered immediately, and a rape had to be the reason for that child appearing. 
So black men were murdered for no reason other than white women couldn't hold their head up to the light of day of what was actually happening. Now, I can we can go into, into the conversation that I was on last night. There's a podcast that I shared with the folks there to get to an idea of white women's responsibility and where it comes from. And this is not trying to get anyone off the hook. But during enslavement, when we talk about lineages, when we talk about inheritance and what that looks like, the children of slave owners, there is a gender distinction. Sons got property. They got land. Daughters got property. They got human beings. Mm. You tell me if we are looking at economic empowerment, and this is way, way back when women really didn't have it. So, and there, there are laws that came in, and, and that's why they weren't owning property. But you look at what wealth could be in this country. You think about enslavement. You think about a whole bunch of white Southern men who own land that you can grow stuff on, that you can build stuff on, but land. And then you think about a whole bunch of white Southern women who own bodies. Mm-hmm. Who has a bigger stake in enslavement? Yeah, exactly right. Well, don't That's don't count out your lesbian. Country. Don't count out your lesbian white white sisters, though. I mean, we are all not all cisgender, and we are all not uh, straight women who who carry around tissues and clutch pearls. There are a lot of you know, queer women who are not looking for men to defend us. Let's let's remain in 2020 is what I'm asking. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. there's turf. There's always turfs around. That, oh, I mean, I'm not denying you- it. I'm just saying that I, I think particularly our audience, we are not this, uh, we are not this clutch pearl, this pearl clutching um, group that you're I, meeting well, last night. I don't night. know. I'm, I'm not too, I'll, I'll say I'm not too sure about that because I think, even in queer spaces, there is a level of heteron of heteronormativity. Oh, okay. and there is, and there is. I mean, I I I get what you're saying, Dawn, and I don't disagree with it. But these things even go beyond just queerness. This goes back to, in many ways, the colonial foundations of what has set up our system. Absolutely, and that's what we're dealing with. It's here. it's 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 almost in our DNA at this point. Four hundred years of indoctrination of lesser than of people who are not like us which means us meaning white women like me i mean that but but that is not only in our in human dna that's in the systemic dna of what of the systems that we're seeing here of the systems that we're seeing in this country and hey we we can't deny and we can't deny that and i and going back to the tears See, this is why I love Jane Elliott so dang much, <laughs> because you need you need more you need more down ass people like her. A white woman herself was willing to stand up in front of a white woman and said, "I have no time for your tears. Your tears have no yeah. currency here." You ever get mm-hmm. a chance? YouTube some of her videos and shows how she oh. deal with the how she deals with the tears. It's savage. It's, yes. And when and when you YouTube her videos and you sit there and you wonder how she did that, go way back in her history and realize that she was a nice white lady who didn't know how to talk about race. She was a nice white lady who did not have the language, but she was a school teacher when MLK was murdered. And her students asked her what, why, how. And she didn't know how to answer this. So she did the blue eyed brown eye test. And, and many of us have heard about oh. that. But oh. She, she, she set her classroom up so that all of the brown-eyed students knew that they were better than blue-eyed students, that the blue-eyed students weren't as smart as the brown-eyed students, but, but basically created inequity in her classroom as a way to teach racism to her students, okay? So that happened. It was incredibly effective, and, and, 
it, you can actually go find the works and the writings and such of many of the children who are in that classroom, and they will tell you how it affected them for the rest of their lives. And it's interesting how many of them go, have grown up to go do amazing equity work. But anyways, she did this in her classroom, and there was pushback. White parents were upset. The principal was upset. It made it into the media in the town. People were upset. She lost her job. She was called every kind of end lover that you could possibly think of. She couldn't get a job. Her life was so negatively affected by racism that she understood that in order to survive, she had to get her ass on her shoulders and be angry. That white woman I will listen to forever because she has experienced as close to what we experience as a white person can. She didn't start off that way. She was a nice white lady who had no clue what was going to happen when she stood up for black, and, for black people in this country. She stood up for us, the backlash came, and she could have gone home and cried and said that she was sorry and apologized to white America for disrupting. Or she can say, screw you, I'm going real hard on this one, check it out. And that's what she's been doing for the last 40 years. God bless. She didn't come out of nowhere. She came out of, she came out of white niceness and had to go through that special, mean, evil racism that white America reserves for white people who choose to stand up for black bodies. When we come back, we're going to talk about why this could be a turning point and why this George Floyd disaster, this murder of this unarmed black man is not the only thing that has people in the streets. Stay with us on the other side of the break. We'll resume with Kamora Harrington. Welcome back to the Transporter Room. Don Ennis, I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb. Joining us is the is the founder, CEO, Generalissima of the of Kamona's Cultural Corner in Hartford, Connecticut, Kamora Harrington. Now, Kamora, you've been you've been speaking out on these issues for more than a minute. For for years, you've put a lot of work, heart, soul, blood, sweat, and tears in a space that intersects blackness and queerness. What got you into this work? <laughs> Um, is this a national show or a local Connecticut show? International. This is a global show. This we, is we, global. Oh. we have listeners in New Zealand, Australia, all over Europe. Oh, beautiful. Well, hello, beautiful humans. Um, but I will say, and I ask that because the, the quick ha-ha answer, which is really the true answer, is Brad Davis. And Brad Davis is a local radio host. He's had an AM show for literally my entire life. I was born in 1971 to a white mother and a black father. And guess what? When I was born, we were kind of the soup of the day. And the whole world knew that we were going, we, we were definitely going to be confused with it. But the whole world had these wonderful, interesting ideas on what it meant to be biracial in America, including our parents. So my parents and many other parents, there's a group of them here in Connecticut, just like today, we've got, you know, we got a group of these activists, those activists, those activists. There's a group of, of biracial families that were kind of on the media circuit going around talking about who we were and what we were. And I remember it being a very young child listening to my parents talk about what they thought my reality as a biracial person was. And I remember being me as a, I mean, we're talking kindergarten before kindergarten and realizing that they had no clue what they were talking about. They had these fantasies about what it meant to be black and white, but they weren't black and white, so they didn't know what they were talking about. And so four-year-old Cammie, started talking about identity and what it meant to have a white mother and a black father as I lived in this world. This is a lifetime of that work. I'm 48 now. So literally at least 44 years. My question to you is what can people do concretely? I am reading as much as I can. I'm trying to 
infuse my brain with voices that are not like mine. And I see people like the coach of the Chargers. Anthony Lynn. Anthony said that when he was a young coach, the head coach came over to him and said, you better buy a ticket. He's like, what do you mean I need to buy a ticket? And he said, you're coaching like a damn spectator right now. That's what I felt like. I feel like I'm a spectator and I want to get in the game. What can I do directly? And that means financially. That means with my feet. That means with my children. Tell me. Great. Okay, perfect. So donate money to Black Run Black causes. There. Give your money to Black Run Black stuff. If you don't know what that is, ask black people what to give your money to and then give your money wherever it is that they tell you to give the money. That's necessary. Start talking about black people. We are not people of color. We are not diversity. We are not all people. We are black. And here in the United States of America, there's a very real necessity for anti-blackness to exist. There needs to be a place where white America wrestles with the black history of America and learns the black history of America for real. So what can you do? You can give money to organizations and people. You can start talking with other white people about the fact that I don't even know how to have this conversation. I don't know what to do. What is going on? That is the place to start. Um, And then from there, learn a thing. Learn real black history from this country. Ken Burns is awesome. I'm not talking about Ken Burns. I'm talking about um, John Henrik Clark. I'm talking about finding real black history that came from the mouth and hands of real black people and learn about us in this country. As any white person in this country, that's going to be incredibly uncomfortable. So earlier when we were talking about white women's role in racism, and I brought up the history of white women in enslavement, white people don't like to hear that. So there's this podcast called um, Backstory. And it really looks at pieces of, looks at what's happening in America right now, finds something in history, and then gives you a whole story. There's one that gives you such a beautiful history about white women's role in enslavement here in this country. And, and that's what or I was speaking to some of that earlier. That as you get into that, you're going to understand what black people mean when we talk about what our pain is and how it, how it goes back forever. Like there's a very frustrating place for me as someone who loves my people and knows our history in this country, is when I'm talking to white folks who want to be liberal and care, and I say, America was built on racism. America was built on the backs of black people's labor. And somehow they think this is a euphemism for something and say, oh, yes, you're right. I know I'm right. Go learn a fact so that you too will know that I'm right. I'm not over here. I'm not trying to tell you that my people have experienced the greatest pain ever in order for you to feel sorry for me and do a thing. I'm telling you that my people have experienced the greatest pain ever because it's true. And the fact that you don't know that is proof of what a white supremacist society we live in so that you don't know that. There's a concerted effort for you not to know what my history in this country is. There's a concerted effort for white people when they start hearing about what really happened to black people in this country to roll their eyes and say conspiracy theory. We all know what happened at Tuskegee with syphilis. That is true. That is a real thing. I can tell you that up until maybe 20 years ago, you say that black people know it was true. White people knew, yeah, nothing like that really happened. I mean, maybe they didn't treat some people with syphilis, but it, now, dude, that's what happened. I understand that it is incredibly 
hard for you to understand the depth of evil in this country. I understand that it's really hard to get into, like, let's bring in some economists and talk about what that three-fifths of a human thing did. Because it's really cool to say, you know what, how horrible that we thought that black people weren't as good as white people, and therefore we made them three-fifths of a human being. And that's so sad because personal feelings, 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 emotions, feelings. No. That was a calculated political move to give power to certain states and take power away from other states. You want to see about how we got here today? It was that three-fifths compromise that created voting blocks so the South is going to be set up as economically depressed and holding on to racism in ways that they are. And the North is going to figure out how to benefit from that, and they'd better be a white supremacist society in order to make this work. But instead of respecting that I'm coming from a place of real intellect and education and knowledge, it's the black lady talking about black pain from a black face. There's real education here. This is not just feeling work. This country was built on racism and enslavement and black people's backs. And white people need to learn that so that I am not constantly in, um, educating people. Like it's, it's really frustrating to try to enter into a conversation with a white person about this and realize that they don't have the tools to have the conversation. Like, I, I cannot believe that there's ever a place when a bunch of brain surgeons are getting together talking about the brain surgery that they're going to do, and a CNA, no disrespect to CNAs, I love CNAs, they are necessary, and boy, do we need them in the world right now. But I cannot see a group of, of brain surgeons sitting up having brain surgery conversation, and a CNA comes in, and that voice is given as much respect as the brain surgeon's voices. That is what white America is asking black America to do. We understand that you know your history. We understand that you've got a lived experience. We understand that you've got a perspective that is necessary. But I got an idea too. So let's have a conversation and let's let my idea and my, let's suppose this carry as much weight as your truth and lived experience. That is such white supremacist thinking. That's the problem. That is, that is one of the biggest problems. White people are not ready to be a part of the real conversation yet. And white people are very uncomfortable not being able to be the authority in a conversation. You ain't lying on that one, especially when you're talking about the first thing for myself that I find that that one of the things I handle it in dealing with it is the first thing I do is take the balloon that I call the American myth and pop it. And you know, and I know that irks white folk, a lot of white folks. The idea that that America always wears the white hat, that America is always good, always down for truth and justice in the world. I will full full disclosures of Marxist Leninist. I have I completely oppose American imperialism and we have to have and also in part of these discussions, we have to have that discussion. We have to have the discussion on the way that this nation acts in the world. But when you and that's why in many ways I do agree with you. A lot of white Americans, to me, the first thing you have to do is prick that balloon and realize that, no, this is the real story, not just here at home, but also in the way America acts abroad. Because it's my personal belief that if you're for brutality abroad, you're probably for it at home, too. And we've seen and we've seen this play out again and again. We're seeing it even in the way that the United States is acting in the world in the middle of the covid crisis. The United States. The United States, for example, sent two aircraft carriers to the coast of Iran, a nation that's being ravaged by COVID, while at the same time, a nation we don't like, Cuba, is sending doctors all over the world to fight COVID. Those are some of the contradictions we have to also look at. Within that, and with that in mind, let's talk about COVID. 
And Kamora, in your mind, how much has has the COVID nineteen pandemic played into what we're seeing now? Wow, you know when they say when you're a fish, you don't know what water is. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, because it's it's infused throughout all of this, all of it everywhere. Um, and again, when we talk about how COVID is disproportionately affecting different communities and different populations, we really need to look at how racism, capitalism, homophobia, how, how all of these figure into that. It's not like COVID itself said, oh, we want to get these people. It's that we created a perfect storm where COVID was able to shine a light on the disparities in our society. Um, and unfortunately, that shining light involves death and dying. Um, but we were not prepared for this. And we were not prepared for it because we've got a whole lot of other crap that we chose to we chose to pay attention to um, and that we chose not to pay attention to. So looking again, the economic disparities is like there, there really shouldn't have been a reason why this country couldn't have shut down. Other than economic concerns right now, I, I can tell you that years ago, I was working with a grant writer who's trying to help me pull in money for my work. And, you know, they kept talking about money, money, money and all this stuff. And I, I had to stop them and say, look, I really want to work with you. I really want to make a lot of money. However, as I'm creating the programs for my people, I cannot think about the money that it will make. If my mind at all, as I'm thinking about liberation, as I'm thinking about raising people and grabbing people and moving people and working with humans, if the dollars attached to that are a part of my thinking, I can't get to the humanity of my work. As a nation, I think that we've spent far too long thinking about the dollars and not the humanity. And COVID just came in and said, this is what happens when you do that. Carly Kamora, let's just take a moment right now to acknowledge that we are going towards the end of our time here on the Transporter Room. We have so much more to talk about, though. So let's stop recording this episode and start another episode. You will find it on the Transporter Room if you go to Outsports on your favorite podcast platform, you will see episode 32. That's this episode. Tomorrow, Wednesday, episode 33, our continued conversation. And if you're listening on a day that's not Wednesday, just look for episode 33, Kamora Harrington, part two. I think we need to have a whole nother episode on this. This is an important conversation that we as Americans, as we as citizens of the planet have to be having right now. Thanks very much for joining us. I'm Dawn Ennis. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb.